Well, good morning. Please turn in your Bibles to Daniel chapter 7. And we have been going through in the last week or so this amazing chapter, this central chapter, Daniel chapter 7. And really, this is an amazing chapter because the whole book of Daniel is amazing. And it reveals and demonstrates and proves over and over the sovereign plan of God that though Daniel may be exiled and Israel may eventually be fully exiled relative to this time period, but nevertheless, our God still reigns. Nations and what nation is in control is irrelevant to the sovereign control of our God. He reigns from heaven no matter what. And Daniel proves that over and over again and not only proves it, but then thereby solidifies that God has a plan that is unshakable and that plan heads in one direction. And through that demonstration over and over and over, through Daniel's lives and through the revelation given to him, there is uh, an application of perseverance. The reason Daniel can remain so faithful for as long as he does is for the very reasons that he revealed in the book that our God does reign, and that no matter what happens, he is in control, and therefore there is a plan that Daniel and you and I, by extension, are a part of that heads in one direction, and there will be victory in the end in the Lord Jesus Christ. But central to this, central to the very book Daniel wrote, and by extension, central to Daniel himself, there is a moment, there is a moment that he fixates upon. There is a moment that everything in the book works to prove and fleshes out more subsequently in the book. There is a moment that is so, so dear to Daniel's heart that he puts it right in the middle of the book. You have 12 chapters, and the hinge on which these 12 chapters turn is found in Daniel chapter 7. This is the controlling vision, and it's not just by its proximity and location in the book. As we covered last week, it is by its own declaration. As Daniel 7.1 says, Daniel, on his bed, he saw not only dreams, but visions, plural. This is the vision of visions. This is such a vision that it can't be one vision, but many stitched together because it attains the totality, the overflow of all of God's revelation. It is called a dream because it's the controlling dream. Nebuchadnezzar saw a dream on his bed. This is the fulfillment of that dream. There are other people in the scripture that have dreams, and this is the dream that rules and govern and dictates them all. This dream, this vision is not just central to the book. It's not just central to Daniel. It's central to all of divine revelation. And on top of that, it is central to history because in this dream, in this vision, what we see is the progression of history, the outline and overview of all history from Daniel's day to the day where there is no longer a day because we are at eternity. This dream is so, so fixed and so, so central, it controls all of that. And there are a lot of lessons, like we discussed last week, to learn from this. There is the lessons of the consistency and constancy of God's word. That Daniel 7, building upon what Daniel had already learned and already taught us, it is absolutely consistent. We can see the parallels between Daniel 2, talking about the statue, the image of gold and silver and bronze and iron with the animals portrayed in Daniel chapter 7. God's word does not change. 
There are no errors or contradiction in God's word. And furthermore, God's plan is absolutely consistent. And it is a consistent plan that there will be real nations in real time and real space, and they will proceed according to a very set plan. You had Babylon, you have Medo-Persia, you have Greece, you have Rome, you have a revived Rome, and then the Messiah will come and crush all of that and establish his kingdom. That plan is set in Daniel 2. That plan is reaffirmed in Daniel 7. There is no contradiction to that plan. There is no changing of that plan or shifting of that plan. It is consistent through and through. And so we learn, yes, the Bible is consistent. It is consistent in and of itself. It is consistent in the theology that it provides. And this anchors us to understand every single other piece of eschatology and revelation that there is. But it's on top of that, it's not just consistent. There's confirmation of the reality of Scripture. We cannot forget that when Daniel was prophesying these words, most of what he prophesied had never even happened. The only thing that he knew about was that Nebuchadnezzar ate grass like a cow. That's the only thing he knew. Everything after that, whether that be a Medo-Persia or a Greece, or that there would be Alexander the Great and four generals after him, symbolized in the text by one animal, with then afterwards four heads. All of that imagery, and then a Rome, and then a revived Roman Empire, and all of that, he did not know. But here is something amazing. On, on this side of history where we are, God, in every single juncture, and in every single detail, he is 100% accurate, 100% accurate. Every single detail that has been revealed, whether that be who Nebuchadnezzar was, 100% true. Whether that be that the bear that was described in Daniel 7, he had a lopsided side demonstrating that there was going to be two nations lopsidedly working together. We saw that, Medo-Persia, absolutely true. We saw that there is an Alexander the Great, and there were four generals discussed after him, who rose to take his place after he died. Alexander the Great was not born by the time Daniel was writing Daniel 7. But the Bible was already discussing what would happen after he died. That is the level of the omniscience of God. That is the level of the precision of Scripture. How can you explain what is going on in the Bible and the nature of the Bible other than the fact that this is divine revelation? And that this divine revelation is not just about a hypothetical world. It's not just about a fairy tale reality. It isn't a fable that just gives us nice ideas. This is the facts on the ground. This is the history that is all around us. This is what you can touch and what you can feel and what is absolutely fact and real. And that is the nature of every single promise and every single truth and every single consequence and every single ramification of the word of God. This is not just some nice ideology that the Bible gives us. This is what is fact in front of you and me. That's what we have to understand. And so this passage mightily confirms the word of God. But there is something more to all than that. Something more on Daniel's heart. Something and a reason and a driving motivation that puts this chapter in the center of them all. You see, Daniel's not just recounting prophecy for apologetic purposes. Amen, that that is true, but that's not the only reason. Daniel is not just commenting on this because it's a spectacular vision. That's true, but that's not the only purpose behind it. What is driving Daniel here is he understands by divine revelation 
what has been driving history all along. What has God established about the question of all of world history? Notice in Daniel 7. Notice in Daniel 7 that the dream is not just a repetition of the image of a statue with a gold head and silver chest and arms and and a bronze abdomen and and iron legs and toes and, and feet. That is not what the imagery is. Rather, it is this. I saw the sky. I saw the wind over the sea. And from the sea came four animals. And after four animals came one like a son of man that rules over those animals. Where have we heard that before? And by way of review, the answer is Genesis chapter 1. The end is going to be the beginning. And the beginning mirrors the end. We know that. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And what do we have in the last chapters of the book of Revelation? And I saw that there was a new heavens and new what? Earth. And so the question is then, since the end matches the beginning, and in the beginning... God assigned one man, Adam, that he would have dominion over this world. Who is the final Adam? Who is the one who will reign forever? Who is the one who will be worthy enough to have it all? The destiny of this world and the destiny of the one who reigns over this world, mankind. Who is the one that fills that shoe? That is the question of Daniel 7. That is the question in all of history is straining and designed to work out and demonstrate and ultimately conclude the answer to that question. That's why what you have in Daniel 7 is a series of kings. You have Nebuchadnezzar and Alexander the Great and ultimately the Antichrist all rising up to challenge and to assert that they are the one. They have that kind of power, but they do not. They do not. And it's a reminder to us All of this is a reminder to us that we need to be asking the right question. Often our questions in life are about the mundane. They are about what I wear and what I will eat and how will I provide and how will I be provided for and how do I have less stress and how do I have more peace and how do I look a certain way and how do I dress a certain way. Those are the questions we ask. They're the mundane. But God said, The real question, the question I'm asking, and the question that actually thereby matters because it's the creator who created all things and set things in order and ordains all things is asking is not about the mundane, it's about the Messiah. That is the question we must be asking. Sometimes we've lost the point. We've lost the point. And we've gotten lost and we've gotten distracted because we've asked the wrong question. God has a real question to ask. And it's not often what we are asking. He will take care of those things. The most important question is, who do you know? Who do you believe in? And likewise, God has demonstrated that there's a point in history. History is going somewhere. It's not just random events. And our problem is, is that we are so stuck on the here and now. All we can think about is this present moment and how things are going to work out. We lose sight of what actually God is doing and where God is going, that history is on a course. It is on a crescendo as he raises up king after king. And you realize that no man, no human 
human being could, even if one embodied all of human might, could ever claim the right to be the final Adam. And this builds to the moment where earth climactically challenges heaven, where earth climactically defies heaven in a future antichrist, and heaven will respond. All of that is set up for heaven to respond. Earth defies heaven, and heaven defines earth and says, as heaven breaks forth and invades, there is no man who is the final Adam. There is only one, and there can be only one. And all of history proves that there is and will be and will be forever only one who truly reigns, and that is the Lord Jesus Christ. That's where everything is heading. And that's where our eyes need to be. Sometimes our eyes are too fixed on the moment, and we don't see where things are going. But when we do see where things are going, it gives us motivation because we know. We know who we're living for. And it gives us perspective because it reminds us that the things of this world will grow dim. They are designed to grow dim because there is a moment we are waiting for when earth will trans- be transcended by heaven and heaven will overtake earth and our eyes will no longer be on the things below but the things above and the things above will conquer and make all things new. That's what we must remember. And at that moment, those things which give us motivation, that which gives us perspective, it is that which gives us endurance. We can hang on there because we know that moment is coming. God has gotten everything right so far, way in advance. He's 100% for 100%. Four kings out of four kings. I think he can finish the 1.5 that is remaining. He's already there. We're almost at the finish line. We hang in there. We hang in there. We continue to persevere because there is a moment we've been waiting for. And so the, Daniel has set forth the course of history, a course of history that crescendos to the moment that we are waiting for. And that's where we left off last week, which is kind of misleading to have a title, The Moment You've Been Waiting For, when you never got to that moment. So the real title of this message is, No, really, this is the moment. And we are in Daniel chapter 7, verse 9 and following. And we can break down this moment into three components, three components. And they are glorious. They may not be exactly chronologically in order, first, second, third. This is exactly what happens in this order. That's okay. They're three components, though, of the same moment. Because it's so glorious, you've got to understand it. And the three components are the circumstances of heaven the condemnation of heaven and the coronation of heaven, the circumstances of heaven, the condemnation from heaven, and the coronation of heaven. Three divisions here. So let's talk about that first element, that first component, the circumstances of heaven. I love this. I love this. Daniel says he continued to see and look into that vision, showing a new stage of it. We are moving from the course of history to what is happening from earth to heaven. And what is the first thing he sees in the circumstances of heaven, the setting that is taking place? I love this. Thrones were established. Thrones, plural. 
Not just one throne, many thrones. And the question becomes, why a lot of thrones? Does God play musical chairs? What's going on? Why do you have a lot of thrones? Who's sitting on these thrones? Why are they there? And if we study all of Scripture, and we study the past of what Daniel has been building upon, and we discuss even the extended, extended, extended versions that the Scripture will build upon what Daniel has established, here's what you learn. Those thrones, there are 24 of them, representing God's people, people like Israel and the church, also known as the saints. These, this is firmly seen in Revelation chapter 1 and Revelation chapter 4, which is, like I have mentioned, the extended version of Daniel 7. More on that later. Nevertheless, here, the first thing Daniel sees is the victory of the saints. In fact, this is so glorious. He sees it in such dramatic reversal. You see, in your translation, rightfully so, it says that thrones, plural, were established. And that's true. But the word for established, the word for set up, is actually, interestingly enough, the word for cast down. And that makes kind of sense because when you set up a throne, you entrench it into the ground, you cast it down so that it's firm and fixed and immovable. That's kind of the sovereignty that we're talking about and the permanence that we are talking about. Absolutely. But this word cast down is very important. Do you remember when Daniel's friends were facing the fiery furnace? Do you know what the king said? Cast them down cast them down, and they were cast down into the fiery furnace. Do you remember when Daniel faced the king of Persia, Medo-Persia, and what did the king of Medo-Persia say about Daniel? What did he have to do with the lions down? Cast him what? Down. Here is what has happened throughout all redemptive history. All those who have persecuted the saints, they are the ones who cast God's people what? Down. That is what has happened in Daniel. That is emblematic of what happens throughout all history. That is the reality of the principle of how we are found and as exiles and sojourners in this world. We are always the downtrodden. We are always the exiles. We are always the persecuted ones. But there will be a day when the saints will not be cast down, but rather their throne will be cast down because they will have the final say. This is what Daniel sees. That there will be a day, even though the saints of old, persecuted as they may be, they will not always be the ones down under. They will be the ones sitting on the throne, reigning with Christ, not because they are anything special, but because they are with the one who is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And Daniel sees that moment, and he realizes there will be a moment when everything will be turned around. And the setting of heaven is the victory of the saints, the victory of God's people. But they're not the main thing, and they're not the main one. Even though that is so worth meditating on, the central figure is not the saints. They're just clinging to this one. Notice the next phrase, verse 9, the ancient of days. Now, why do we call God the ancient of days? 
Jewish people were uncomfortable calling God the Ancient of Days because it implied that he was really, really old. If you think about it, if God is eternal, and since God is eternal, he inherently is really, really old. Or to put it better, he transcends time. He transcends time. Do you want to know how you can control something? You have to be outside of something. How are... How does a movie or a film or a piece of literature like a book operate? You have somebody outside of it, the author, the director, the screenwriter, controlling everything, writing everything down. How how do you have control over an event? Because you are not part of that event. You stand outside of that event. That is the only way you really have control. If you are inside, you are part of the whirlwind. You are part of the mess. You're not in control. Do you want to know who controls history? The whole flow of time? One who transcends it. One who is the ancient of days. And history is about to be made. And history is about to be finalized. And history is about to be fulfilled. And the only one who can do that is the one who stands outside history. That's the ancient of days. And so this ancient of days, the one who transcends all time, the one who transcends all history, notice what the text says. He sits. He sits on his throne. There may be thrones for the saints, but they are only there because there is one central throne, and that is God's throne. That is the triune God's place of dominion. And he sits there, and I love that. Because sitting, of course, fundamentally denotes sovereign rule, the place of authority, the place and the posture of activity. Amen. But sitting is so resolute. Have you noticed that when people are frantic, they stand? Have you noticed when people panic, they don't just keep sitting? They certainly don't just lay down. That's why Jonah's actions in the book of Jonah are so abhorrent. Because how could you go to sleep when God is judging you? doesn't make any sense unless you have a really hard heart like Jonah. The world is swirling. The Antichrist is rising in defiance against God. He embodies, as we said last week, all of human might and power. Every ounce of power that there is in all of human history and all human habitation and the entire created order, he has centralized in himself, and he's challenging God. And do you know what God is doing? Sitting. There is no threat to this God. Nothing shakes him. Nothing moves him. Nothing deters him. Nothing intimidates him. He sits and reigns. That's what he does because that's what he always does. And nothing changes that. This is the pinnacle of authority. And as such, as the seated judge, totally in control, ready to exert once again his rule that has never ended, never paused, never faltered, and judge and have a verdict and execute it over heaven and earth, God comes fully situated for this purpose. Notice what the text says in verse 9. It's closed, white as snow. What is that? Total holiness. Total holiness. He can judge rightly, Because he is so pure. 
He can judge justly because he is completely holy. He will judge as intensely as need be and will be intense because it is coming from a vantage point, not of relativistic qualification because you're just a little bit better than somebody else. And so who are you to judge log in your eye? That's a human perspective on the matter, rightly so. But God is not like that. He is holy. And therefore, his judgment will be the most extreme and the most just and the most radical and the most intensive because he is not coming at it from a relativistic standpoint. He is coming at it objectively, objectively holy. And it's not just that, total transcendence. That's his white hair that you can see in the next phrase. White hair, why? Because he's all wise, all insightful, all perfect all amazing. And so you have a judge who is totally holy. You have a judge who is totally wise and knows exactly what to do and how to do it. And if devastation is called upon, he knows exactly the way to exact that devastation in the most devastating way. And if there is call for wisdom to be enacted, he knows exactly what to do. Nothing can thwart him. Nothing can outsmart him. Nothing can outpower him. He is there with all of his holiness and all of his omniscience. It is all there. And on top of that, it is all funneled to one end total wrath total wrath notice not just white clothes not just white hair but his throne is on fire doesn't take much to figure out that that's probably not a good sign when your throne is on fire either it's a brilliant torch guiding the way i suppose or somebody's not happy and destruction's about to ensue. Earth has challenged heaven, and the throne room of heaven is on fire, ready to burn earth. There is total wrath, and speaking of total wrath, therefore, there will be total judgment. Total judgment. Notice the next phrase. There are wheels on this throne. More on that later. It's very unique for thrones to have wheels, normally, a throne that doesn't make a lot of sense for most people but why does god's throne have wheels because his reign goes everywhere and anywhere without any hindrance you actually will see this in ezekiel 1 but these wheels are not just wheels though they are that these wheels are on fire so that wherever these wheels go everything is set on fire and what does that mean God's judgment from the throne, exuding his full wrath in his full transcendence and in his full holiness is about to go anywhere he desires and everywhere he desires without hindrance and set everything in its path on fire. That is total judgment. That is total judgment in breath. And there's only one outcome to that. If God in his omnipresence is about to go everywhere he is present and set it ablaze, then you have total destruction. Total destruction. Look at what takes place. It's that there's a river that's a fire. So you have a fire throne, a fire wheels of the throne, and a fire river that's flowing out, and it flows out from before him. If you've ever seen lava pour out from a volcano, anything in the lava's path just burns. Just burns just incinerated. Imagine a river, a 
of fire from God, from a chariot that moves every single place and is designed to move around the entire world at an instant without any hindrance, and he will set everything ablaze. You know, the irony is this, and this is clever. Of course, it's God, so of course it's clever. God promised to never flood the earth again with what? Water. So instead, in Daniel 7, he will flood the earth with fire. And that is what is going on here. He will complete everything he said. He will do everything he said, and there will be total destruction. Just like the whole world was destroyed, minus eight people in the watery grave of the flood, this world will not endure before our God, who is in total holiness, total transcendence, total wrath, total judgment, and thereby with total destruction as he floods this world with fire this time. And you say, well, maybe somebody could stop him. That's what happens in the movies. Well, try this. Notice what it says. Myriads upon myriads, thousands upon thousands attend him. That's talking about the angelic host. That's talking about the angels of heaven. Thousands upon thousands. That's a lot. And they attend him. What does that mean? It doesn't just mean that they're just standing around, talking amongst themselves, having a great time. It means this. When God says go, they go. And when God says do this, they do this. They are ready to execute. This is total execution. You must remember that in the scriptures, angels can blind people. They have that power. Angels can harm people. We know one angel killed 185,000 Assyrians in a night. That was just one. What do you think a thousand upon a thousand can do? And Yahweh is called Yahweh of hosts. Have you heard that? The Lord of hosts. Why? Because he is the commander of the heavenly armies. The heavenly armies are saying to God at this moment, you say the word, we go and there will be no one left. You can't fight an angel and win. Why? Because you can die, and angels can't. It won't be. It's a pretty one-sided deal. And you don't even need to fight an angel. You already got God saying, I'm going to incinerate the world. The angels are just gravy, just extra for the fun of it, just to make the point. You can't win. All of heaven is assembled, ready to execute God's will. And there is no doubt that it will come to pass. And more than that, you say, well, then what are the myriads upon myriads that are standing before him? What are they doing there? You got already the armies of heaven willing to, ready to execute. What do you need more there for? To show what kind of authority God has. In ancient Near East, they, oh, and even in the book of Daniel, did you notice that the king has a court, and sometimes it has a lot of people. 120 satraps. Very impressive. How about myriads upon myriads upon myriads of angels? More impressive. God has total execution, and he has total support. The world thinks it's very powerful because it's on the physical plane, and it can wield the might of earth. What do you think God will do? when he wields the might of heaven. That is what is going on here. God 
totally reigns. And God has designed this moment to reveal his total holiness and total transcendence and total wrath and total judgment with total destruction and total execution and total support. And there is one purpose behind it, and that is to climax all revelation and history. Look at what the rest of the verse says. It says this, Then the court sat for judgment. The court sat for judgment. Yahweh, the ancient of days, the one who transcends history, he sat. And then what happens? The whole court sits. And we know that this is the the centerpiece of Daniel's revelation. How do we know that? Because the word for court essentially is the word Dan, like in the word Daniel. This is everything that Daniel has been about as a prophet. This is, ev- this is the moment that he was named for in God's providence. This is the moment of everything, his entire point of his entire book, right here, because it's his name. It's in his name. It's, this moment is what lives up to the name Daniel. This moment is Daniel and is everything that the prophet is and everything that he wrote about. The court sat. The court, its name is Dan, like the word Daniel. And this is the moment. This is the moment we've been waiting for. And on top of that, it sat. And it sat for judgment because earth does not reign over heaven. We've seen that time and time again throughout the book of Daniel. Whether you're looking at vegetables, whether you're looking at dreams, whether you're looking at fiery furnaces, whether you're looking at the banquet, whether you're looking at a lion's den, earth does not reign over heaven. Heaven reigns over earth, and heaven has the last say. It sits to judge. That's what it does. And this this is truly not only the center of revelation, this truly is not just the definitive demonstration of the greatness of the sovereignty of God. This really is the reign over history. Why? Because at the end of verse 10, what does it say? The books were what? Opened. Now, what books are these? What kind of library are we talking about here? Well, you could have the book of life. That's one kind of book. Uh, You could have the book of eternal life, the Lamb's book of life. But there is another kind of book, one that records all people's deeds. Revelation chapter 20, verse 2 talks about this. Romans chapter 2 talks about this. And that is what is here. God is about to take into account the deeds of men And when do we do our deeds? When do we do our stuff? What is that called? The record of all of that. We call that history. God says, you may have learned history and you may have had a textbook about history in your your school, in your class. Maybe you had some world history textbooks. That's really neat. Let me show you. This is the real book of history. And he opens it and he's about to go through it all to judge. This moment deals with all history. Why? Because it does. Because that's what God is doing. He's opened the books. He's about to deal. He's about to handle and respond to and judge and release a verdict and execution and punishment for what has been done in history, particularly this climactic moment. And so what you have is the setting. The setting is this. The one transcendent over all history takes his seat. Though earth may challenge, 
He is unperturbed. And this is the climax of the center of Revelation because this is the word Dan, like Daniel. This is the center of all history because the history books are open and God is about to evaluate everything and he has been patient for all of history, but the patience stops now at this moment. And this is the moment where God unveils his total holiness and total transcendence and total wrath and total judgment and total destruction with total execution and total support. And this is the moment he has designed not only heaven to be engaged in, but also the saints to look forward to because that's why there are thrones there and the saints who have been oppressed and the saints who have been cast down will be cast down no longer as their thrones are cast down there. This is the moment that God in infinity past has designed for all heaven, for the saints, for history, for revelation to reveal. And here's what you then learn. Here's what you then learn about this moment. If God has so designed this moment this way, it isn't just that this moment is what Daniel has been waiting for. It isn't just that this moment is what heaven has been waiting for. It isn't just this moment that history or scripture or divine revelation or the saints have been waiting for. This is the moment God has been waiting for in a sense. He has always wanted this moment to happen because this is his gift as a father to his son. This is the moment God has been waiting for. That's the setting. The setting is simple. It's the culmination of everything that there is. Because this is the moment the father has been waiting for his son. He has always designed this world to be for the good of his son. Sometimes we have father, son backwards because of the cults. It's very tragic. The cults want us to think, oh, if if Jesus is called son, that must mean that he's lesser than the father, because they run on this kind of American consumer mentality where fathers are taller and bigger than their sons, so their sons have to be less than them. It's all materialistically oriented. But a good father, what defines a good father? His love for his son. That means the son is not less. That means the son is more. In fact, that means his son is everything. When Jesus is called the son, then, it's not because he's less than the father. It's because he's the focal point of everything the father ever wanted. The son is the high title, not the low title. This is the moment the father has designed for his son. Because the father has always loved his son. And this is the moment, in a sense, and I stress that, that he says, that's my son. Worship him. That's the moment everyone, including the father, in a sense, has been waiting for. That's the circumstance of heaven. But we need to understand then that there's a challenge against heaven from earth. And the circumstances then are set to answer. So what is heaven's answer against earth? And that moves us to the second point. From circumstance to condemnation. Condemnation. The condemnation from heaven. Verse 11. Verse 11 and 12. Daniel keeps looking in the dream, especially because of the voice of the words, the great boasting words of that horn that was speaking. What you have here, just by way of review, is that 
the course of history has moved from Babylon to Greece to Rome to a revived Roman Empire with an antichrist, one who embodies all the might and all the power, this horn, this symbol of authority. And he has all the greatness. He's speaking great words. Why? Because there are many great things throughout the scripture, like the great statue and the great idols and the great power that the kings like Nebuchadnezzar and others thought they possessed. And this this horn, this antichrist, he is speaking these great things because it demonstrates he possesses all that power. There will be one who is truly the embodiment of all human power and might and ingenuity. You might think that our presidents, past or present, are impressive. You might think that a Hitler is very impressive. You might think that other tyrants, they're impressive, not because, of course, of their moral standing, but because of the power that they wield. Let me be clear and let the Bible speak to this. They didn't make the top four. They didn't make the top four. If you think they're terrible, you've never seen anything. And you haven't seen anyone yet. The Antichrist is worse than them all. If you think your ruler is bad now, you have no idea. I have no idea of what is coming. He speaks these great things. And notice it says in the text he is speaking these great things. Why does that matter? Because... He has not waned at this moment that heaven is about to act. It wasn't that God caught the Antichrist on a bad day. Kind of like his power was only 75%. You know, he he just woke up on the wrong side of the bed and got got, got him by surprise. And that was part of the brilliance of God's strategy. No, this guy, he is at the peak of his power. He is exerting it all, and it has not diminished. He is the embodiment without deviation or degradation, and he is boasting against heaven. And what does the text say? And then heaven kills him. Simple. What does the word kill mean? Kill. He's dead. He's taken out. This horn completely devastated completely incapacitated. And, and I love this. His body destroyed. The power of the Antichrist and the power of his kingdom was that his body, that might be the, the entire nation representative because kings and kingdoms, they're so linked, that it assimilated the entire world under his rule. It controlled every single aspect. It was found pervasively and extensively all across the land. There was never a space on the planet. I mean, if you're the embodiment of all human might and power, there's never a space in this world where his influence wasn't seen. It is absolutely extensive and comprehensive. That's the way his influence is. And we know that. If you read the book of Revelation, when you're talking about if you don't get a certain sign of the beast, he's going to be able to cut out, cut you off economically, physically, everything, and he's going to find you out, and there's really no place to hide and all this kind of stuff. You know how much control he had. Here's what the scriptures say in Daniel 7, though. Here's what we must learn. It will be eradicated. What was everywhere, saturating everything, coating all the nations, 
in an instant, it will be erased. It will be as if he never existed. His body will be destroyed. And I love this. If you trace the word destroyed throughout the book of Daniel, here's here's what the text says. The king sought to destroy Daniel and his friends, Daniel 2. Daniel 3, the king sought to destroy the friends of Daniel. Daniel chapter 4, the king thought he could not be destroyed. Daniel 5, the king thought he could not be destroyed. Daniel 6, the king desired that Daniel would not be destroyed, prayed for him day and night, but could not prevent it from happening. You know what will happen to the Antichrist? Those who thought they could destroy God's people, they will be what? Destroyed. And there will be one truth, and this is what the truth says in Daniel chapter 2. You know what happens when the stone strikes the statue? It says this, it crushed the statue and destroyed it. That's what happens here. There is only one winner from this battle. One, and only one. And everything that he thought was in his power, and everything he thought that that was in his pervasive influence will be completely, 100% eradicated. And it's not just that. I mean, you're already dead, so to speak. You're already dismembered, so to speak. How about eternally judged? Look at the end of verse 11. And he was given to the burning fire. Where have you heard about fire before? Well, the throne was on fire. The wheels of the throne were on fire. There was a river of fire. That's a lot of fire. It all comes from God. It all comes from God. What will the Antichrist face forever? The wrath of God. The fire of God. That judgment is particularly targeted to him. And it makes this statement. I don't just win. I don't just, God does not just have victory here. God has justice here. That's what he has. He has sat down not just to declare that he will have a battle strategy to conquer the foe. The court sat to judge, and the court will judge. And this one will be judged. That is what is taking place here. Well, how do we know that this devastating judgment will take place the way that has just been described. Verse 12 helps us by contrast to understand that. Notice that the remaining beasts, there are three of them, their dominion was taken away, but they were given an extension of life. How do you know that the big bad beast, this fourth and its final iteration, and the Antichrist that is embodied by it is completely eradicated, Because once that one is gone, the three that were taken over by it, that were swallowed up by it, they reemerge. That's how you know he's gone. Their existence proves the fourth beast's non-existence. Their existence proves that God truly eradicated that fourth kingdom so that there is not a trace of it remaining. Those three kingdoms demonstrate that. Now, you might say, oh, well, then those three kingdoms, they're kingdoms. Not quite. Why? Because their dominion was what? Taken away. T- taken away. They don't have any power. They exist. They exist for one purpose. I love this. What's their purpose? To show that Jesus won. The one over the other one. And the way they exist proves one purpose, which is what? Jesus won. 
And so whether you exist or whether you don't exist, whether you survive or whether you don't survive, there is only one reason why it happens, and that is to prove this. There is only one who rules. There is only one and only who rule. That's why the world will be configured the way it will be configured, with the complete absence of that fourth kingdom and the presence of the other kingdoms, with their dominion taken away to demonstrate this. There is only one who rules. All of history has been on a quest to find the final ruler, to find the final Adam. And history has crescendoed with the world positing that this Antichrist, this horn of this fourth beast, as the one who embodies it all. And here's what heaven says, not even close. Not even close. For all the might that you think you have, earth, for all the power, and if you combine all the power together, and if you thought that could ever challenge heaven or ever actually rule over earth the way the final Adam, the last Adam is supposed to, if you thought that that could even come close, not at all. Because with the breath of God's mouth, dead, judged, no trace remaining, that is the reality of the situation. Brothers and sisters, don't, don't be intimidated when you see trial and when you see opposition and when you see the foe and when you see power that is harming the saints. Don't be intimidated. We can grieve, but we don't be intimidated. Why? Because we know that that is nothing in comparison to our God in the end. And don't become enraptured or fixated on power either. As if if we can support enough human governments and enough human politicians and manipulate things in humanly ways that it will attain our ends. Human power has nothing on God. Human power has nothing on God. God will reign supreme. We put our allegiance in the sun. And so here's what heaven has said. Take any man on this planet, in all of history, give him all human might, and he's not the final Adam. He's not the answer. He's not the one you're looking for. So maybe we should meet the one we're really looking for, yes? And so that's where the circumstances move to the condemnation from heaven, move to the coronation of heaven. The coronation of heaven. Verses 13 and 14. So why is this one the one? Why is the one that we're about to meet the one? And heaven answers it all. Daniel looks in this night vision because it's the night vision that controls all night visions. And here's what he sees. You want to know why Christ is the only one? Because he's the only one that's majestic. He's the only one who's truly majestic. Notice he comes with the clouds of heaven. Clouds can denote mystery. If you think about Sinai, God dwelt in a cloud. It was mysterious. It was wrathful. It was powerful. Psalm 97, it says that God dwells in a dark cloud. You can't penetrate him. You can't figure him out. You can't perceive him. You can't grasp him. That's absolutely true. And so Jesus has this divine transcendence, this divine mystery. You, you, we think we know Christ, and of course we know him relationally, but we cannot get our arms truly about all that Christ is. What is true of God is true of him, of course, and it's just like what Job says. All we know are the faint whispers of who he is, and all we know is the very edge of his character. That's all we know, the hem of all that he is. That's all we know. 
Christ is so transcendent. He's so majestic. But if you're coming with the clouds of heaven, clouds move fast. Have you noticed that? Clouds can move rapidly. They're swift. They fly. They float. Christ comes with mystery and swiftness, with absolute transcendence and total majesty. And the reason it says the clouds of heaven, it's because of this. He's the only one that commands the heavenly host. He's the only one that has the support of all of heaven. He is the one who leads heaven's armies. He is the one who commands the angelic armies. That's what is taking place here. And so he's the only one who's majestic. That's why he's the final Adam. You want to know why? He's the king of kings and the lord of lords because he is the only one who's the final Adam. Notice the last, the next phrase. One like a son of man. Very key. Very key here. Notice it doesn't just say that he is a son of man, a son of Adam. It says he's what? Like a son of Adam. Why? Because there are similarities. He is from Adam's line via the incarnation. We understand that. Luke 3 demonstrates that. He is truly man. That is absolutely true. But he's like a man. Why? Because when you say something is like that, you both imply similarity and what? Not similar. Sure, he has similarities, but there are some differences like this. He does not sin, whereas we do. He does not disobey, whereas we do. He is not fallen, whereas we are. He, he can fulfill and does fulfill the mission, whereas we never could. He is the one who then is alone worthy because he is everything we are not so that we can be everything we should be in him. That is why he is like a son of man, because he has solidarity with us, but he is not like us. He is perfect and beyond us in that way, and that makes him the final Adam, the one who is not just in our lives and like us and empathizes with us and is with us. That would just make him, like Hebrews says, sinful like us. He is like us in the sense that he is both sharing similarity and having dissimilarity in all the ways that he is not like us makes him qualified to be the one who fulfills us. That is what is going on. He is like a son of man. And so all creation has been wondering and all history has been wondering, who is, who is the final Adam? And now you meet him the one like a son of man, the son of Adam. And he's not just the only one because he's the only one who's majestic. He's not just the only one because he's the only final Adam. He is the only one because he is the only God-man, the only God-man. Notice what it says in the rest of verse 13. It says this, until the, he, he reached the, or he, I think it says, approached the ancient of days. I love this. The word for approached is actually the word reached. Daniel 2, the statue attempted to reach heaven. The Tower of Babel, the tower attempted to what? Reach heaven. Daniel chapter 4, Nebuchadnezzar dreams about himself always, and he dreams himself that he was a great tree, and the tree reached up to heaven. Have you noticed how often man tries to reach heaven? Reach heaven, reach heaven, reach heaven. Because man tries to become God tries to attain that level, tries to have that kind of power and authority, but they never can reach there. 
the tower. God says, what's that down there? And he goes down. The statue that tries to reach gets toppled over. Nebuchadnezzar, who's the grand tree, it's cut down. There's only one who reached God, and that's God, the Son. That's it. He's it, because he is God. He has all the power that is God. He is God. He's one with him. There is no division of essence here at all. And he not only is one with God in essence and power, he is thereby one with God in status. That's why he can approach and stand right next to him. Why? Because they're one. They're one. He is divine in both power and posture, status and strength. One. No distinction at all in that regard. And so he's the only one because he's the only one who's majestic, the only one because he's the only final Adam. He's the only one because he's the only one who is divinely worthy, and he's the only one because he's the only one who is worthy. Verse 14, I love this. To him was given dominion. What's dominion? The power to rule. And glory. What's glory? Glory is one's personal majesty, one's personal gravitas, one's personal eminence. When you see someone and you're just in awe of them, that's glory. And he was given to him what? A kingdom. That's where power and dominion and glory all coalesce as you reign over a specific place. And not only that, notice what also was given to him, that all peoples and nation and tongues would serve him. All people, nations, and tongues, that's every single human being in the world. Every language dedicated to God. Every people and every nation, both political and individual, all of them serving God. And why, I mean, all those truths about all that glory and all that power, both personal and interpersonal, both kingdom and political, both both serving spiritual, but also the breath of it across the world. All of that. Everything is given to him. But why are all these things used here? Simple. If you read throughout the text of Daniel, Nebuchadnezzar tried to get all the dominion. Nebuchadnezzar tried to get all the glory. Nebuchadnezzar tried to have a kingdom. Nebuchadnezzar, he ordered in chapter 3, every nation, people, and tongue to worship him. Everyone. All the kings from Nebuchadnezzar to Belshazzar to the king of Medo-Persia, every single king in Daniel has been after all of these words, dominion, glory, kingdom, all peoples, tribes, nations, tongues, all of that. They've been after trying to get people to serve them. That's what Daniel 3 talks about. You will bow down and serve the statue. You have to do that. They tried over and over to have all of these things, but guess what? They never could. Why? Because it belongs to only one. Only one gets all of these things. Why? Because he's the only one who's worthy. Why? Because he's the only one who ever possessed them to begin with. This should be clear in our minds. People do not have independent authority. This is not just a co-op where you get to share authority and a power-sharing system. You get some, Christ gets a little bit more. You have a little bit, Christ has the majority. That's not how this works. No man by himself has any authority, any power, 
any glory. Why? Because it all belongs to who? God. This is not you have some in yourself and God has some and combined together we get a cumulative total. That is not how this works. How it works is this. God gives, God has it all and it is given. Why? Because he has it all. So it is given to those he chooses for a period of time. But in the end, what will be made clear and what has been made clear throughout all of history is that God has never let anyone have all the glory, honor, and power. Why? Because he has reserved it for his son. It is always for his son. And in the end, it will be demonstrated for his son. That's what is going on here. And so all the glory, all the dominion, all the kingdom, all the worship, all the spiritual service in the end will be his because his son is the only one who is worthy. That is what is going on. And so when you are, and because you are, Christ is the only one majestic, the only final Adam, the only one who is divinely man, and the only one who is worthy, you know what that means? You're the only one who has the right to reign forever. And that's what the text says. He has all the dominion, so his dominion is an everlasting dominion. And his kingdom will never be diminished. It will never be destroyed What is that talking about? There will never, ever be competition to God and Christ. Why? Because he has all the authority. And his possession of all the authority will never, ever diminish. It will never lessen. It will never be destroyed. And so externally or internally, competitor versus internal stability, God will reign totally and independently forever. And that is the Lord Jesus Christ. Why? Because he's the only majestic one, the only final Adam, the only divine equal, and the only one who is worthy. So therefore, he is the only one who will reign forever. Set your eyes on him. Now, speaking of which, speaking of which, we said this is the moment God's been waiting for. We said this is the moment Daniel's been waiting for. We said this is the moment we are waiting for. Now think about this. Think about this. Do you remember that Isaiah had a vision? Isaiah 6, he said this, I saw the Lord, what's the next phrase? Seated on a throne, high and lifted up. What was the Ancient of Days doing? He was what? sitting on his throne. Ezekiel, do you remember this? Ezekiel said, I had a vision. I saw heaven open and I saw God's throne. And I saw on his throne that there was wheels within a wheel. What did Daniel say? God's throne has wheels. They're all on fire, but yes, he has wheels. (laughs) Do you remember the transfiguration? Jesus, before the apostles, selected ones, He's as white as snow, yeah? Just like Daniel 7. Do you remember in Paul on the Damascus Road? This is astounding. Here's what he said over and over as he comments on it in 2 Corinthians 4. He says, I saw the image of God. I saw the image of God. Who is the perfect image of God? Christ. And why is he the perfect image of God? Because he's the one like a son of man, the perfect image bearer, one who is perfect in every way and does but yet is like us. And perfectly God. So Paul saw the same thing. And what does John see in the book of Revelation? He sees one sitting on the throne. Angels, myriads upon myriads surrounding him. And then who comes before God? Christ, the Lion of Judah, to take the what? The scroll. They all saw the same thing. They all were seeing the same moment. 
This isn't just the moment Daniel was waiting for. This isn't just the moment the saints are to wait for. This is the moment Isaiah was waiting for, Ezekiel was waiting for, the apostles were waiting for, John was waiting for, Paul was waiting for. They all were waiting for this one moment. This is the moment. Why? Because this is the moment God established everyone, including the Father, in a sense, to wait for. Because this is the moment that is central to all revelation and all history. That's what we look to. Do not get stuck on the here and now. Do not just fixate upon the questions of this life and the mundane things of our lives. Look to this moment and all will become clear. For those who are strong and bold at this moment, do not be so caught up in the struggles of this world and the struggles and fighting all the things in this life. Yes, be faithful, but do not be caught up to it. Direct your eyes to Christ. And for those who are weak and suffering, those who are weary and burdened by the trials and the confusion and the risks and the tribulations of this life, look to this moment. It is coming. There is a moment we are waiting for. The Father has dedicated all history to this moment. It is irrefutable, proven by already the historical pattern of fulfillment that we have seen. There is a moment that we are all waiting for. You just hang in there and this will be true. And there will be a moment when all the things that have bothered us and distracted and burdened us will go strangely dim as earth is transcended by heaven and those who have been trampled down will be set on thrones and they will have the final say, not the persecutor, not the oppressor. And it is not because we are worthy, but because we know the one who is. That is what is going to happen. And so what we need to do is turn our eyes from the things of this world, from the things below to the things that are above. Because there is one who is worthy. And there is a moment that will reveal him. And we know him. Shall we pray? Our God and Father, may it be that we understand your great love and your great purpose. There is one moment we are waiting for. There is one son alone who is worthy, who is the final Adam. And may our hearts, as dragged down as they may be, always be pushed to look to the same thing that Isaiah and Paul and John and all the saints of old who desired to endure, who desired to finish well, who desired to trudge through this life one step at a time, where their eyes were fixed to, that moment we are all waiting for, when all of heaven and all of earth and all those who know Christ bought by his blood all say he is worthy. And we will know that everything in our life is worth it. And so, Lord, make us faithful till that day. In your name we pray. Amen.